Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Audra Becker, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Thank you so much for having me. I guess we should mention you and I used to work together. That's how we know each other. Uh, we and did. I had mentioned you doing this podcast, I don't know, a few months ago, and, and I think you were 50-50 for a while. And then you, Very you're, like, much. Yeah. you're like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. What, what changed? Um, you, it's funny. I mention it to a lot of family and friends, and they all said they would jump at the opportunity. So I don't know if it was peer pressure. I don't know if it was motivation from them but uh that that's really where it started and they said you know this would be cool to have documented and i would do it in a heartbeat so i thought about it and i said let's do it so to a person they all said they would do it in a heartbeat or was that that was the majority the majority yeah cool yeah i mean there's some personalities like yep i never need to talk about myself recording or otherwise uh but i i think there are a bunch of people that are typically on the fence at the beginning they're like you know what doesn't hurt for people to hear my story. Absolutely. Very cool. All right, well, let's start at the beginning. Where were you born? I was born in Scottsdale, Arizona. Scottsdale. What's going on in Scottsdale? Yes. Why were you born there? Um, just my parents had their their apartment was right near Scottsdale Osborne. So um, my uh, family's actually all in Pittsburgh. And my parents had just moved out here not too long prior. Um, my dad was going to go to Grand Canyon. Gosh, it wasn't Grand Canyon University at the time, Grand Canyon Community College for baseball. So they had moved out here. And then uh, my mom got pregnant with me, her second child or their second child. And I was born there. That's a, uh, interesting. I mean, you must really love baseball to go from Pittsburgh to Arizona to play. We did. It, yes. And um, most of the family, if you weren't going into uh, college or something along those lines, a lot of a lot of family and friends worked in the uh, coal industry. And my dad said he just didn't want to do that. So he thought, you know what, I like the weather and uh, I like baseball. So let's go. And the weather, I, I guess the, that was the first weather you'd ever experienced. Kind of hot, but but dry. Like you. Humidity, you didn't learn about until later in life, I'm guessing. Absolutely. Humidity and, oddly enough, uh, daylight savings time. I did not know about time zone changes. <laughs> I, I learned it all. <laughs> I think Arizona and maybe one other state, ever since daylight savings time became a thing, has just said, yeah, we're not playing. Yes. Yep. <laughs> so uh, I, you brought it up. So if you're in Arizona and everybody else is changing twice a year, does it have zero impact on you guys or you have to figure out a lot of stuff if you're talking to people from other states? The only thing now thinking back, but my parents did it for me um, back when I was a child, obviously there were no cell phones or anything like that. So we would make calls from our, our home phone back to my grandparents and, and other family members in Pittsburgh. And usually it would be around dinner time or after dinner time, their time. And so I remember it would shift a little bit for us, but I never thought anything of it. So for the most part, no, I didn't think much about it. More so now in the professional world, I have to take that into consideration if, you know, corporate offices or different employees are in different time zones. Yeah, but it's probably no more of a nuisance than it would be living anywhere else, I'm guessing. No, no, not at all. 
Yeah, I guess you're. Yeah, sorry for talking about this so much. I guess your baseline doesn't change, right? Right. Connecting with everybody else. Yeah. No, but I did love when we lived in Indiana for a little bit. Um, I did love if when we would. When is it? You fall back, you gain an hour. I loved yeah. that day, but I didn't like springing forward. I like my I'm, sleep. Yeah, I'm the same way. I'm totally with. <laughs> it. We're getting ready to fall back here uh, in a week or two. I think. Yes. Yep. Yeah, good time. We spent way too much time talking about daylight savings time. And here I was worried about content. <laughs> we're, we're almost five minutes in and we've talked about where you were born in daylight savings time. Uh, how did you grow up? Your entire childhood was in Arizona? It was. Yep. Yep. I grew up. Um, I didn't move really anywhere outside of the uh, you know Phoenix metro area until 2017. So yeah, all through elementary, high school, all of that here. So you're, you're a true Arizonan. Absolutely. Although I will say since we moved back here from, we are now in Arizona again from Indiana. I don't know if it's just having been away for a couple of years, but the summers are feel more brutal. I don't know if it's me getting older or what it is, but it's it feels hotter and, and the heat seems to last longer throughout the year. I'm guessing it's age, everything's cyclical. So maybe we're in a weird part of the cycle where it is hotter for longer. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then for those uh, that are following political things, maybe climate change is a real thing. Who knows? Yes. <laughs> um, but we, I try not to be political on this, so we won't go there. Uh, all right. So when you were like eight, nine, ten years old, what were you doing when you could do whatever you wanted? Oh, gosh. we um, So we actually grew up on a street where – there were about seven girls that all lived on on that street including my sister and myself we were all within two to three years of age so we spent a lot of time all together we were outside truly outside until the street lights came on playing anything you can think of i mean um kickball four square we would put on dance performances for the the neighborhood um we'd make up clubs we had candy clubs safari clubs uh yeah, anything you can think of, we would do. It was all outside, pools, anything. All right, so there's a lot to explore there. Uh, <laughs> Let's unpack this. <laughs> so, why why the need to form clubs around the notion of candy? What what what's the difference between just loving candy with your friends and having a candy club? I so I I don't know. At the time, I, I feel like this was probably our rationale. There be a, a candy truck or ice cream truck that would come through. And so we would scrape up some coins and then all buy stuff together. And uh -huh. then we would keep it in a box. I mean, since it was, I think it was the majority of us anyway. So it could have just been us friends and candy, but it became a club and we would have, um, you know, certain times that we'd meet, I think I, if I recall correctly, we'd have to each bring some, some change wherever we found it or however we got it from our allowance to purchase, make our next candy purchases together. So you pulled your, uh, your resources in the form of money. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Did, you, did you guys ever negotiate discounts for candy? You know, no, we didn't, but we were very um, structured with when and how much of the candy that we collected that we could eat. Um, I do remember saying like, okay, well, this one seems to be getting a little old, therefore we can break this up among us. And um, yeah, there was a, there was a lot that went into it. Who, who was the president of the club? You? I, 
I venture to say yes, but I don't remember. <laughs> I'd like to think I'd come up with a cooler club, but I, you know, at the time it was cool. <laughs> right, right on. All right, so uh, dancing. Yes. Did you have a choreographer? We would choreograph our own dance routines. Um, all of us were, or the majority of us were in some sort of dance classes or cheers, spirit line types of, of classes or within the schools. And so we would uh, get together and typically form, typically we'd have it set where, you know, we'd have a couple people do duets and then we'd have a big group dance. And I remember we'd drag out a bunch of blankets and chairs and make little invitations for our parents. And then um, they would come and come and watch it. It was, it was a big to do in the neighborhood. I, I was not fortunate enough as a uh, younger <laughs> person to experience neighborhood uh, dancing like that. <laughs> I, I guess when you have, I mean, look, I don't want to be stereotypical here, but I grew up in a neighborhood that didn't have any girls. And oh, so the, okay. There were no dance choreographed dance routines. Maybe I, maybe yeah. I missed out as a child. Yeah. You know, there were, a, I would probably say almost the same amount of, boys uh, maybe a couple of years older and they would definitely be down the street playing football or there'd be times that we'd all join forces and you know play in the pool or play kickball or something but for the most part we would do our own things uh were you a, a, a kid that your parents would say oh she's so easy to to parent or were you uh a, a bit of a challenge same same no, question I, I was a challenge. Uh, my sister is, yeah, my sister is, uh, she's 16 months older than me and she is definitely a, uh, definitely your, your typical first child. She achieved really excelled in anything. And, um, for the, for the longest time, I think at least the first couple of years, she would always speak for me, which was mm. funny. So everyone would think like, wow, Audra is so quiet. And then it just, my parents always told me just one day she, you found your voice and you haven't stopped talking since. So um, I, I was definitely a little bit more challenging. I would question things. I would definitely question why, where my, my sister would probably fall in line more, more easily. Um, but I used to want to be a lawyer and my parents thought I would be a good attorney lawyer um, because I can argue pretty well and try to convey my point, even when it was something at a small age, young age. Do you think that has more to do with genetics or uh, birth order or, or a good mix of both? I, I don't know, because I feel like sometimes when you read on birth order, you could almost read something and feel like, oh, that's me, that's me in any kind of, if I read something on the, old, the, the eldest, I could say, oh, I, I see a lot of me in that too. So it could possibly be that. Um, I feel like I definitely have more of my dad's traits. Um, I, I would say we're more aligned behaviorally and just our overall characteristics. Right. On. And my sister is more like my mom. And so your, your dad's a little more out there challenging things and, uh, yes. mom and sister go with the flow a little bit more. Yes. Yes. And they both ended up in the, uh, teaching field and are both very just, patient and um very very effective at what they do there's good in in both uh personalities for sure absolutely cool all right so when you were in uh, did you call it middle school or junior high like junior so, high junior high yeah it was junior mm -hmm. high was that seventh through ninth grade 
back? Yeah, it was. Yep. Okay. Seventh through ninth grade. Um, I would say that was probably my favorite time of, uh, you know, all of my, my schooling. I, we were playing a lot of softball. I swam, did synchronized swimming. I did cheerleading my freshman year. So I just loved my freshman year was by far my favorite. I loved being the big fish in the smaller pond and just the, everything I was involved in that year. Yeah. A lot of kids, male or female look back at middle school and like, ah, it's kind of awkward, but not, that wasn't the, the experience for you. No, no, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I think I enjoyed high school too, but I only took how to take my senior year. I only had to take half of a, a day. Um, so I felt like I now looking back, I kind of missed out because I was working early. Um, so I, I think that was part of it, but I did not necessarily feel all that awkward. I would say it was more just eager to, to join again, be on the softball team, be on cheerleading and, and do swimming in the summer and synchronize swimming. All right. You're, you're about a decade and a half younger than I am. And so we're not exactly in the same generation and we didn't grow up in the same parts of the country. But when I was a kid, literally for a boy, it was football, basketball, and baseball for girls. It was maybe soccer, basketball, and uh, softball synchronized swimming. <laughs> if you told me what that was when I was in eighth grade, I would be like, what are you talking about? I, I have no concept for that. Now in Arizona, it's warm, right? So you can do synchronized swimming yeah. inside and outside. Yeah. Um, what, what did, what was enjoyable about doing synchronized swimming? And I'm asking out of complete ignorance. Oh yeah, no, you're fine. I, I would best describe it as you're dancing. It's water ballet. You're dancing in the water. And so um, I, my sister and I often did took dance classes together anyway. And we first were drawn to it because we always did competitive rec swimming. And so, um, you know, we'd be swimming laps and, and training in the pool. And then in the dive tank, we could hear music above and below the water. Mm. And we could see basically dancing, you know, you see legs flipping up and people flipping around and dancing in the water. And so the next year, I think we mentioned to my mom that we'd like to try that in addition to continuing with competitive swim. So we we did it. But Basically, it's it's a lot more challenging than people might think. I mean, you're treading water the entire time. Um, if you're, you know, up above the water, you're dancing, moving your arms around and treading water. If you're flipped underwater, you're sculling and holding yourself up with your arms while you're doing the splits and other, you know, routines with your legs. The opposite of treading water is sculling water. Well, it, you, it's the sculling is the movement that you do with your arms mm -hmm. and I'm doing it as though you can see it and listeners can see it, but um, <laughs> it's, it's the movement back and forth that you do with your arms to help you stay upward and um, out of the water. So when you hear music underwater, is it exactly like hearing it above the water? Yes. So there's an actual speaker. I feel like now, and this was years ago, I think now it's, it's a lot more high tech, but they used to drop like a speaker and the wire, like on a rope with a wire into the water and they hooked it up to the player. So it would just play exactly the same. And so you just hear the same music up, up the top as you would um, under the water. I, I had no idea. It looked, so I, I learned how to swim at a young age. 
I learned pretty quickly that I, uh, I, I viewed swimming as unnatural for humans because you couldn't breathe underwater. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and, and the, the repetition of sw- swimming, much like jogging, just wasn't a thing for me. Mm-hmm. What was it about swimming, not synchronized swimming, what was it about, uh, I'll call it lap swimming, that you enjoyed? And, and obviously you can get in fantastic shape doing it, but there has to be something else you get out of it besides getting in shape. I think it was, for us, it, it did seem natural because my parents had us in pools at, I mean, I think like two. And they had us uh, taking private lessons in our pool to make sure we could swim in our, our family pool at such a young age that it almost did seem natural to us. So, for example, my brother, uh, he almost looked unnatural playing basketball and soccer and foot like the other normal sports or that you'd assume would be more more common sports than he did in the water he just looks still to this day still looks so natural in the water so i think that's a part of it just mom and dad said hey we're going to be in the water a lot yeah yeah and the interesting thing was that we will still joke about it where so my my dad obviously would he played baseball so he would coach or help coach um, our softball or else give us feedback on the drive home, whether it was good, good or uh, constructive feedback after a tough loss. Um, and then my mom was in cheer and dance. And so she would, you know, videotape us or, or tell us how we could do better in, in dance and swimming for all of us was the one thing they hadn't done. And so they were kind of learning it with us. And mm. so I don't know if subconsciously it was kind of like, all right, we're all learning this together or um, I can lose and maybe they don't know how to tell me how to do better because they haven't done it. So I don't know if it was something like that, but we will joke about that, that, hey, we all moved forward in the one sport that you guys had. And I'm guessing every kid swam out in Arizona. Yep, yep. Yeah, I mean, the weather's made for it like basically all year round. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, they're definitely, they're outdoor, even they heat the pools, but you could swim outdoors in a heated pool all year round. Gotcha. And so, sorry, back to synchronized swimming, because it's That's so okay. important to me. You, you wore uh, swim caps, I'm, I'm guessing. No, and I'm so glad you brought that up. So we, we, you don't, so you can during practice, but when you're doing a performance, you have a full blown, um, we would typically make our own suits. So we would sew sequins or other fabrics and patterns onto the, the suit and then you'd make a headpiece. So we all have our hair pulled up in a bun and then tie this headpiece around the bun to all look the same and, and do our routine. And to keep your hair up though, if you think about it, obviously in the water, your hair is going to get in your face. So one thing that helps your hair stay in place is actually Knox gelatin, which is mm. um, jello. And so we would heat up the water and pour the, the powder into the Knox, or I'm sorry, into the, the water and let it sit for a little bit. Then before it, you know, congealed or whatever you call it, whatever you actually call it, yeah. um, we would put it in our hair and kind of smear it all around and, and slick our hair back and keep it in that bun. Um, once it would dry, it would harden to where you could literally like knock on your head and you could hear just, it was absolutely hard. 
So then during your routine, which would be call it on average four to four minutes, maybe during your routine, it would all stay in place and stay out of, out of your face. What was it like uh, after you got out of the pool? So you had to, you had to wash it quite a few times, a lot of shampoo and really scratch at it to get it to finally come apart. But what was even better was that was the best way we learned that you could make like a, uh, almost like a fake scar or like a, like, like in the spirit of Halloween, um, if, if some knocks runs down the side of your face or down your back or wherever your neck and it dries, it looks just like makeup, like a scar, like a scary thing. So anyway, we, we would use that later on or tell people, Hey, if you want to do this for Halloween, this is a cheap and easy way for you to do some cool, cool effects. So you and I are recording just a few days before October, but unfortunately this isn't going to be published until. <laughs> okay. Well, next year, 2023. We'll have a 50 week head start on uh, Halloween next year. And by the way, if I don't learn anything else, I definitely learned that. I had no idea. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm wearing caps. No. So you do when you're, when you're competitive swimming. And like I said, you can, when you're pro, we did when we were practicing, but no, on an actual performance day, you were, glammed out in in waterproof makeup um some people would put do like the vaseline on their teeth to make their upper lips slide up so you look like you're smiling constantly it was a it was a big big to do how old were you when you stopped doing it um i i believe i stopped right after my freshman year of my freshman year so i i had broken my leg playing softball and so that summer I had a cast and when it finally came off, it was a little late in the season for summer rec league. And then I just, I, I didn't go back to that because I started competitive swimming and swimming for our high school. Gotcha. And so competitive swimming took uh, the front yes. seat and synchronized yes. swimming was not really a thing anymore. Yes. Yeah. I, I it's an, it's actually an Olympic sport, right? It is. Oh Yes. I mean, it's in. I, I can't even fathom treading water or being upside down, uh, keeping your legs above water for four minutes. That seems insane to me. Yeah. And holding your breath for quite some time. We had to do a lot of breathing exercises to do that, to hold your breath, be underwater, swimming and holding yourself up. That is, uh, yeah, something I'm, I, even as a, like a 15 year old, I don't think I would have contemplated that. I'm certainly not going <laughs> to do it now. <laughs> Uh, all right. So when you were in high school, were, were you more academically inclined? Were you more of an athlete, a, a good mix of, of those two things? Plus, uh, did you have other interests outside of sports in school? I would say I would say a mix. Um, I definitely was in like the National Junior Honor Society, National Honor Society and um, I, I really focused on swimming was my main I think that was actually the only thing I did in high school. That was the only sport I, I did. I stopped. I, I think the breaking of my leg in softball stopped my softball playing and synchronized swimming. And then uh, dance and cheer kind of fell to the wayside as well. And I just focused on swimming. And uh, did you enjoy the academic part of school? I did. Um, I, I really enjoyed once we got to, I took Spanish all the way up to Spanish five um so as high as i could get in high school 
and I enjoyed the electives. So I enjoyed the psychology courses and those. I also really enjoyed human anatomy. So more of your standard classes, not so much, but I, I liked the other ones that offset the rest of the day. So I was good. Yeah, I think the, the public education or even private education before college, the, the four standards of math, science, English history uh, have been around for over a century. And, and look, the, a foundational understanding of all, all of those, especially English, is really good. But a lot of people are never going to get into math and science, and I'm not sure they need to go through seven plus years of it. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. I mean, I think personal finance, maybe we could teach that in our school systems. Um, 100% agree with you on that. Or, or how to, uh, how to take care of uh, a house. I I, I don't know. I, Mm -hmm. I'll I'll get off my little soapbox there, but yeah, I'm, uh, I've, I went through this through school. I've watched my kids go through school and I'm like, there's just a lot of waste here. Yeah, I think I think we could figure out how to uh, find what the kids are really interested in and really uh, get behind that instead of just kind of blindly going through the uh, the motions. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. So did you know you were going to college at a young age? I did. Um, my my parents were um, very. I wouldn't say they pressured us, but they they were very encouraging to go just just keep going, just go right into college from from high school. So all three of us did. My brother, sister, and I all did. And uh, did you apply to a bunch of places or just the one? Uh, just U of A and ASU. And um, I yeah, I can't remember if I got into U of A, I'll be honest. I ended up going to Arizona State. So <laughs> I think it, whether I, I guess I won in that regard, I, I cannot tell you if I got into U of A. So you applied to two state schools in your home yes. state uh, was yes. part of that because you you grew up following them. Part of that was it's in-state tuition for your parents. What was it about yes. the two schools? I, I would say... I would say both. Um, I, Leah, my older sister, she was a year ahead of me and she went to Arizona state. So um, I think that was part of, part of it was like, Hey, I I could go here. Um, I don't know that I ever, I don't know that I ever really thought about going out of state. Um, I think part of it was the affordability. Part of it was um, I had started working and I enjoyed the job that I was working at and I, I think it just fell in line. A lot of my friends were applying at ASU, so it just seemed like the the place to go. Uh, I'm not trying to be funny here. What is ASU known for? Anything in particular? <laughs> um, I mean, really, at the time, it was a party school. Well, I was, so I'm that, not sure I was trying to <laughs> I was trying trying to avoid that, not necessarily because it's a problem. It just I was thinking, like, are they really good at? And I'm making this up. Geology, or are they really good at psychology, or something like that? And you say party school at the time. Is it not known as a party school now? It might be, but it was rated up there. I know when I was going, it was rated up there very high um, in one of the top top party schools. But I would say I think the business program is pretty well known. Um, but but yes, I would say more so than anything, if you ask the majority of people about Arizona State, they'll usually say a party school. And, and when you say they were rated high as a party school, who rates such things? <laughs> I don't know. I think yeah, if you Google it, it's probably out there. So I'm not sure who does. Who has that job? 
after we're after we record. Yeah, who's? I mean, are these twenty-year-olds that are right? This or are these forty-year-olds? Which is they're both problematic, right? <laughs> oh my gosh, that's very true. I don't know. Now I feel like I have to look it up. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm definitely gonna Google it after uh, we finish recording. Uh, what did you end up majoring in? I majored in interdisciplinary science, um, which is basically like two minors and some core courses to make a major. So business and sociology. And what were you going to do with those? Um, at, at that point, I was just ready to graduate. So I actually was at ASU for 10 years um, because I, I switched my major a couple of times. I was working full time and the the company that I, I worked for they did the tuition, they had a tuition reimbursement program. And so for me, it was kind of like, okay, if you get A's, they're paying 100% of this. So keep going and do your thing, take your time. And I still remember the CEO stopping by one of the dealerships that I worked at. And he's like, okay, are we paying for college for life? Are we graduate? Like, what are we doing here? And I thought, man, if I'm getting that kind of recognition, I think I better move this along. So um, yeah, I originally wanted to either open up a bar like coyote ugly okay or a spa uh, like a day spa um i would say the day spa thing lasted that that dream lasted longer than the bar but those were my two two ideas in in college and what i would do when i grew up yeah bars sound fun uh but i, I think there's some stat out there 95 percent uh don't make it past a year uh, the, the spa idea, I mean, look, if it has a good market for it, then yeah, why not? And by the way, when I asked, what, what did you plan on doing with it? I cringe when I asked that question, I feel obligated to ask it, but I cringe because I still don't have an answer to what I wanted to do. when I was <laughs> All right. So when you were, uh, so you, you were working in Arizona and you, how old were you before you lived in a different place? Oh gosh. Um, 35. All right. So, I mean, you are hardcore Arizonan. Yes. Yes. If you were talking to somebody who lives in a different part of the country or even a different part of the world, but let's start with a, let's say they live where I live in Virginia. Uh Why would you tell me to either come visit Arizona or live there? I would say the mountains, the hiking, everything that you can do outdoors for you being from Virginia, it's going to be very different. Obviously the desert landscape. Um, if you were a golfer, I would mention the golf. That's obviously a big thing out here year round. Um, I would say those would be the main things. And then also, you know, we're depending on what time of year you come here, we're, I, I live in Phoenix or right around the, the Valley. I live in Mesa technically, but you're two hours away from the snow. You can go skiing up in Flagstaff. You're a 45-minute flight from Vegas. You're um, a 45-ish minute flight from San Diego or roughly a five-hour drive. So you can get to a lot of places quickly and different climates to be able to be in the desert and then head up north for um, a major climate change is pretty cool in, in a matter of you know a couple of hours. I had no idea you could ski in Flagstaff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Snowball is a pretty um, 
it's popular here. I think that's our, the only major one that I can, that I'm familiar with. But yeah, you can go up to snowball and ski. Because it's not flat desert there. Obviously, it's it's higher altitude. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Yeah. There's a point when you're driving up into the northern Arizona, and it's it's so interesting because you're you're driving through, and it's just desert landscape, cactus and cacti, plural cacti, all around you, and all of a sudden it it slowly changes and then before you know it you're surrounded by pine trees and it's just such a cool thing because it's like you're not paying attention you're just kind of cruising along and then all of a sudden you're like where are we it's totally different up here yeah that's neat when one state offers uh different uh climbs like that Mm -hmm. very cool all right so when you were you were working at a college uh did you have any hobbies when you're in your 20s and 30s during that time, I traveled a lot for work. So uh, in my 20s, um, I was definitely, I would say that was really a hobby was exploring other cities. Whenever I was traveling for work, I'd either stay over a weekend or just make some time to look up some some cool places to to go and explore while I was, while I was there. So definitely that. I can't remember exactly when I got into photography. I'd probably say some some point when I was traveling and taking pictures on probably my not so good quality phone back then. Um, but I, I also do enjoy photography and, um, you know, taking landscape photos, taking photos of family, friends. Um, one of my good friends is a, a wedding director and um, I've stepped in and helped her actually do full wedding, wedding photos before. That's really cool. So you have a, an appreciation of the equipment, mm-hmm. uh, lighting, um, yes. positioning, all, all of that. Absolutely. Yeah, I, 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 I can't see it. Like when I'm ready to take a picture, I'm just like, okay, I'm, you're squared up. You're kind of centered in what I'm doing. And that's all I'm really thinking about. It's interesting because when you first start, it's you do like want everybody centered in your photo and you want all of it you just think like that's kind of the standard photo. And then once you start getting a, just thinking outside the box or just thinking like, okay, I, let me just try this. And you start getting creative um, with different, different poses and different angles um, and, and just the lights, the sunset, everything. It's, it's cool what you can do. And a lot of the, a lot of my favorite shots are honestly mistakes or they they were completely unintentional and I was actually about to fall and I I uh, took a picture and didn't realize I was going to and I thought wow that actually looks really cool I wonder if I can recreate this yeah that's uh that it's one of the fun aspects of life is mistakes being enjoyable mm-hmm. yeah all right cool I so transitioning to a topic that when I met you it's been about a year right Yes. About yep. a year. You were in the middle of uh, treatment for cancer. You you were yes. mostly through your treatment, but you were still going through, uh, and you weren't in full remission yet. Uh, right. Are you are you in full remission now? It's the verbiage is is interesting now. So what they say now is no evidence of disease. I'll say NED. Um, I don't know when they made that change from like remission. I don't know if they're, if you ask any doctor, um, I feel like they all have different answers. Um, sometimes they'll say remission isn't until you're five years out of no evidence of disease. And then some doctors will say, 
I just keep it at no evidence. Um, so technically no evidence of disease. And um, I've been that way since um, April 7th of 2021. So it's been, it's been uh, about a year and a half, which is great. All yes. right. So let's, let's, let's start at the beginning. This is a yeah. tough topic. Uh, cancer is, doesn't, touch every family, but it comes pretty close. Um, yes. You had, you had breast cancer. Um, yes. I, I know a fair number of women that, that have had it. Um, and each experience is unique, but there's a lot of similarities, but let's start at the beginning. How did you discover that you had cancer? So Chad, my husband and I, we were in San Diego um, celebrating our two year wedding anniversary. And I went to adjust my swimsuit top and I had felt a lump on my left side. And it, I was like, oh, this is, you know, I don't recall, I don't recall this. And at first I wasn't that concerned uh, because Easton, our son was only, he had just turned one. So I thought it might be a clogged milk duct or a cyst or something from breastfeeding. So, um, I had mentioned it to him then and, um, just said, Hey, I'm going to get this checked out when I get back. I just, it seems, it seems weird. I know it hasn't been here, but I really didn't think too much of it at that time. Um, and then, so are you freaking out at that point? Or you're like, I'm not, I'm not going to freak out until I talk to a doctor. Um, a little bit. I, I did like the big no-no and started WebMDing myself and comparing, you know, like reading what, what does it feel like? Does it, you know, does it have jagged edges or whatever? All those, you know, things that they'll say on there. And um, that messed with my head a little bit. And then Chad was like, hey, let's just enjoy our time and try to keep like, we don't know anything and it could be absolutely nothing. So let's enjoy our anniversary. So um, for the most part, we were able to put it off. I did make an appointment with my doctor. Um, we, we were there like Thursday through Sunday. And I think I got into her Tuesday or Wednesday of the following week. So once I'd made the appointment, I thought, well, there's nothing more that I can do at this point in time. So um, let's try to enjoy ourselves. And all right. So you go to your doctor and your, your mm -hmm. doctor is trying to figure out what's going on. Did she know pretty quickly that uh, you needed to, to do a biopsy? No. So at my appointment, she was not concerned at all. So she had said, given my age being, you know, in my thirties, um, just having a baby the previous year, she had said your breast tissue is dense and um, this lump had likely been there. And I just didn't notice. And with all the changes and hormonal changes and everything with having a baby, it was probably nothing. So she had actually said, why don't we wait about six months and see if it goes away? And um, I just, I, I wasn't okay with that. So I, I asked her then if she could order me an ultrasound to confirm it was a clogged duct or cyst or in fact, nothing. And um, just let her know it would give me peace of mind and she again tried to schedule a follow-up six months out and I asked again and this dance kind of continued for what felt like forever, but probably a minute or two. And then finally she ordered a scan and then sent me on my way, basically saying, you'll, you'll see everything's fine. So then about a week and a half later was um, an ultrasound and a mammogram. And that's when they, they did their 
did their tests and then a radiologist came in and said, we can confirm that it's not a cyst or a clogged milk duct. It, it, it is in fact a mass. So we'll need to uh, biopsy it. So from the time you discovered self-discovered to the time that you actually had it confirmed that it was a mass, it was about two and a half weeks. Your doctor yeah. was trying to make you wait over six months. Yes. Um, if you had waited that entire six months, do you feel like you wouldn't be here? I don't know. Um, so one other thing that they had discovered during the ultrasound, they told me there was a suspicious lymph node, meaning that it, it was um, enlarged and they were concerned that they, they wanted to biopsy that as well. So that in fact did, um, was, was cancerous as well. They, they did have, there were cancer cells in there. And so potentially, because if it's, if it's already gone to your lymph nodes, it's the cancer's basically, you know, um, shown its intent to, to spread. So, um, I, I, you never know, possibly quite possibly. So you get, there's a biopsy ordered once they mm -hmm. realize it's, there's a mass. How long yes. did you have to wait before you found out it was actually cancerous? Uh, it was about a week and a half. All of this for me, for whatever reason, I was extremely lucky to get through so quickly because um, just everything was so backed up from COVID. People have been waiting months sometimes to get these scans and everything. And uh, there were cancellations and just things were able to line up for me. So it was it was fairly quick after that. I think it was maybe, yeah, maybe a week, a week and a half until we yeah, got the phone call. I should have asked you this earlier. What month and year did you discover? Was it in 20, 2020? 2020. Yes. I actually um, got the phone call that I had breast cancer on October 22nd. So last Saturday was two years. So you were, you got a phone call. Yes. Were you alone? No, thankfully. Um, it was a Thursday and it was at eight Oh nine in the morning. And I remember I had a zoom call with my team at eight 30 and my phone rang and, uh, you know, by that time I was so anxious for that call. And for whatever reason I was about, I feel like I was about 90% convinced that they would tell me it was benign and that I was all good. And so as soon as I answered the phone and the, the nurse on the other end, you know, identified herself and asked if somebody was with me, I knew that the outcome was actually the opposite of what I'd anticipated. Yeah, told you what so, the yeah. yeah. And so thankfully Chad was, he was working from home that day and I yelled for him and he rushed downstairs to take the phone. And I mean, really the next hour or so after that was just a blur. I just, I remember not being able to breathe and thinking I was going to throw up or pass out. And I could hear him asking questions and see him writing things down, but it was like, it was in slow motion or it was like an out of body thing. Like I, that was watching through water or something. It was really strange. You probably felt like it was a death sentence. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and um, I don't think I had mentioned this. So you had said it, you know, cancer touches every family for the most part in some form or fashion. Um, we don't have any cancer history of any any type in my family that we know of. Um, I have one aunt through marriage that um, had breast cancer. But other than that, nobody. And so I had I kept saying that, you know, through this whole process. And even when I met with my oncologist and I said, well, you'd be surprised at the number of breast cancer um, patients that are that are diagnosed that they don't have history. So it's somewhat of, of something that I, I think I always took 
tucked in the back, had tucked in the back of my head is like, I don't really worry about it that much because we don't have a history. And I was just so far off um, thinking that that was one of the main factors, risk factors when it comes to it. Is that, is that true? Like it, it can, it, I mean, it could increase your odds, but it really, there are so many people that are diagnosed with breast cancer that, that have absolutely no family history. So um, I know they, they always ask you that in your medical history. And um, even my doctor who had told me to wait six months, she had said, well, you don't have anybody in your family. You're young. Um, I, I'm not concerned about it. And so I think sometimes just hearing that, even though it's not a major factor for people that aren't, uh, you know, well-versed medically, I just assumed like, oh, it's not a big deal. We don't have that family history. I'm not that worried about that. In your particular case, will you ever know what caused it? No. Um, so they, you know, there are, there are probably like six or seven factors that typically they can attribute it to. Um, they did genetic testing on me. I don't have the, the breast cancer gene. Um, I had Easton over 30, over the age of 35 and he was my first child. So, um, that can cause it, um, especially if it's hormone driven. And so that potentially could be it, but really my, my doctors have all said, you know what, to really know what caused it, you never know. It could just be bad luck. You, you just, you don't know. It could be environmental. It could be all these factors and again, we don't want to get into too much, but they'll say different things with FDA approval. Like it's so many things, all, all of the things that we're ingesting, anything like that could truly cause it. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it too much, you'll, uh, you'll be afraid yeah. to leave your bedroom. Exactly. Yes. All right. So there you are just hearing something you never thought you would hear. You, you, yes. you felt like it was uh, an out-of-body experience. You felt like it was a death sentence. Yeah. Uh, your husband's probably flipping out. Um, mm -hmm. it, how quickly did you go from panic to, all right, here's the plan? Um, it was pretty quick. So in that, in that hour or so that Chad was on the phone, he, by the time he hung up, he had scheduled appointments with in that following week, that was a Thursday. So that following Tuesday, which ironically is two years ago today, um, I actually text my my oncologist today saying, hey, two years ago we met. Um, and anyway, um, so we met with a medical oncologist, a breast surgeon, radiation oncologist, a plastic surgeon, and then uh, a genetic counselor as well. So they are very quick with everything to try and um, they obviously want to be as aggressive as possible with treatment and get things moving so it was very very quick that everything got scheduled so um, are, are your basic options at that point and you can just say hey I, I, i've got the answer here you don't have to ask this long-winded question but I, I think you tell me where i'm wrong here you have the options of chemo plus uh radiological treatment uh, one or the other or both, you can you can uh, have a mastectomy or not, uh, or you can do nothing. Are those effectively the options? For the most part, so they, they'll, um, they, they go through and they'll give you their recommendations. So like in, in my case, um, they had said, let's do chemo first um, to see, that way we can see if we can shrink the, the tumor. It was about two centimeters. Um, so it was fairly large, I would say, um, but two centimeters long. And if we're able to shrink that, and once we do more scans and MRIs and determine that there isn't anything 
any other, um, there are any other tumors or anything in your, your chest, we could just do a lumpectomy and preserve your, your breasts. Um, and then because there was, there were some cells in my lymph node, they recommend radiation for that. You don't have to do radiation, but they recommend it typically, um, to help catch any of that just in case the chemo doesn't. And so they'll come up with like a customized plan for you. I personally had told them and Chad was in there with me. Um, we said, be as, as aggressive as possible. I never once, I said, I want a double mastectomy. I had nothing in my, my right. Well, yeah, I, I lost you there for a few seconds. Sorry about that. Oh, so everything was, um, I said, take everything. I don't, I don't want to deal. I, I want to be as aggressive as possible. So I said, do the double mastectomy, take all of the breast tissue. Um, I don't want to risk anything in the future. And I did the radiation and then the, the chemo. So I, I went that route. Um, and sorry, Paul, to answer your question from before, really, it was, it, it was a kind of an ebb and flow of emotions, right? So it was like sadness. It was that the panic at first, then it was sadness of like, why kind of the, why me and what am I going to do? And what about Easton and you and everything? And then it was, no, we've got this. We we're going to get a plan. So then there was some sadness would kick in again. Well, what if the plan doesn't work and uncertainty? So it was to this day, sometimes there's some ebb and flow with emotions, but I would say we kicked it into, um, let's, let's kick off this plan, uh, quickly that mode very early on. Yeah. I, I said radiological treatment. I meant to say radiation. Um, apologies for the wrong terminology there. Um, so aggressive as possible. Well, let's back up. Um, was there a stage attributed to what you had? Like, were you stage two, one, two, three or four? Two. And what does stage two mean? So um, it's all based on the size of the tumor and if it's affected any lymph nodes. And so um, because of the fact that it was under two and a half, but um, it was in a lymph node, um, then it was considered two, stage two. Okay. So if it had been larger um, and affected lymph nodes, then it's a three. And then potentially, yeah. And then you could get to four if it's significantly big uh, and lymph nodes, it sounds like. Well, four would be, yes, exactly that. But also four would be, it would have spread to another organ. And so that's one thing. As soon as they, as soon as they, they confirmed that it was in a lymph node, they did tests like a full PET scan to check all my other organs. They did a bone scan to see if it had spread to bone. Um, and from there, then they go back. If nothing was, thankfully, um, it was, those were both all clear. And had they been, they would have changed, potentially made some changes to the treatment plan. So I, I'm guessing your oncologist who's seen a, a lot of this and is living this um, mm -hmm. as a career was probably fairly encouraged uh, with w what stage you were at. I think so. And it's funny because he was very reassuring to both Chad and I. I still remember him say, telling us that 
for whatever, for whatever reason, most breast cancers show up on the left side, um, or it's, that's typically where they find a, a mass. Um, and then my type, so there are all different subtypes of breast cancer. So my actual subtype being hormone driven, and uh, there's like a protein receptor, not to get too technical, but um, they, that is one of the most common types. And so he said, I never want to make you feel like, oh, it's just your run of the mill cancer. It's obviously cancer. But he said, this is very common in this plan. We're, we're confident in this plan that this is, is going to be effective for you. And so, I mean, you know, you going, you, you go from not worrying about anything like this to hearing like, hey, it's the best kind of cancer you could, breast cancer you could have is like, well, I'll take my wins where I can. Yeah, I mean, it, in, on a scale of one to 10, 10, 10 is everything's awesome all the time, and one, the, everything's awful. You were probably in the realm of one to two, and you, you, you were the high end of two. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Um, all right, so chemo, what was that like? It was it, it was interesting. So um, before you actually do it, they put you through what's called chemo education class, and where they tell you, they, they literally have you read with them, um, all of the potential side effects. So again, like you said, this is where I'm like, okay, well, this is where I could die. My gosh, if I read all these things, like I'm going to be a blob of a human after if, if all of these things take place. And, um, they're obviously required to do that. It's, you know, toxic chemicals going into your, your body to kill cells. And so you do that. So I was really prepared to just feel so weird and just get really, really sick. And thankfully I didn't. Um, I, they, they give you Benadryl at first. Um, and that made me a little sleepy and they, I, I really didn't have that many side effects. They pump it in through, um, an IV. I had a port, which is like a catheter that is attached. It's still, it's still in me right now. Um, it's like a catheter in my chest that's attached to my main, artery there's a little tube that goes up into my main artery and so that way I don't have to get constantly poked in my arm I would just get it attached um, the needle would attach to the catheter and anyway you feel like you're full because you're getting so much fluid pumped in you um, and then your mouth I just noticed my mouth it would taste like a metal taste mm. all the time so your flavoring would would change um, but other than that, I mean, I worked, I bring my laptop in, I bring video magazines, any, anything to pass the time. Cause sometimes you were in there for six, seven hours. And you're out of work at this point too, right? No, I, I worked the whole time I did um, oh, wow. in intermittent FMLA. Um, but I really didn't use it that much. If anything, I, I, once I kind of got past that initial fear and, and sadness, I, wanted to keep life as normal as possible. And so I, yeah, I pretty much worked the whole time through chemo. Um, I took some time off during, you know, surgeries, but other than that, I, I worked the majority of the time. I adjusted my hours. So ever so slightly, once I started getting tired, because chemo does have a, a cumulative effect on you to where each, each um, round gets a little bit more tough for you because it's killing more of the cells and you notice it, uh, being a little bit more hard on your body. But um, other than that, no, I worked the whole time. That's amazing. I don't think that was possible 20 years ago. I don't think so either. It's it's amazing how far, even it, like the type of, of 
chemo, they call it like a chemo cocktail. So there were like four different things that I was getting that were all considered chemotherapies, but it's based off of my subtype of breast cancer. I always thought chemo was like, that was what it was. It was just a bag of chemicals and every single person that has cancer gets the same exact thing that no, I mean, they're somebody that has a different type of cancer wouldn't have any of the chemotherapies that I had. What were the side effects uh, of not only chemo radiation, like, like everything you were going through, what, what were the side yeah. effects? Yeah. Uh, so for, for me, obviously losing my, lost my hair. I shaved my head before when my hair started to fall out. I shaved my head before um, I actually let it all. I just couldn't do that. I could not let it fall out in clumps on its own. So um, losing my, all of my hair, you don't realize how necessary nose hair is until you don't have it. I will say that. <laughs> um, uh, I would say the, the, again, the taste for me, that definitely was a big factor. Um, I'm somewhat sleepy, but not overly tired. There was a little bit of nausea. So your first round, they tell you your first round of chemo, they'll tell you to, to, track your, your, um, take your temperature every couple of hours and track everything. And, and you're basically taking steroids to wean yourself off of the chemicals that are flushing out of your body. And I noticed quickly that it was about, I don't know if it was about 72 hours after I was, after my chemo, I would get very, very sick. And so they, they give you all of these medicines. I have so many anti-nausea meds and anti-diarrhea, like everything. They'll just give you everything and say, any kind, any side effect you have, I have, here's everything for you. And so I got to the point where I knew it was like clockwork. If I took an anti-nausea pill at a certain time on Sunday, because I'd have chemo on Thursday, I would be fine. So I learned that way. Um, but a lot of people do get, get pretty, pretty sick from it. Um, radiation for me, really, the only thing I still have to this day is it looks like a tan, um, right where they, they radiated up toward my collarbone and then just, um, kind of like midway down my, my ribs. Um, but my skin never peeled. I smothered aquaphor all over me and just listened to people that I knew, um, from previous experience, they told me what to do and what worked for them and what didn't, um. It's definitely a very, there's a, a very broad, large, and uh, helpful network. Nobody obviously wants to be in it, but the the support from complete strangers and, and friends that have experienced this was amazing. And so I just use a lot of their tips. So radiation was honestly a breeze for me. One round of radiation or a couple rounds? Um, so it was actually 35. Um, what? And it was every single, or... I think it was 35. It was either 30 to 35 because it was, I think it was six and a half weeks long. So it was every single day, uh, weekday, and you just go in and I mean, it's about five minutes long. You go in, you lay down, they map you because they, they measure everything. And obviously it's on my left side. So they're trying to avoid my heart, my lungs, um, as much as they can. And so they make sure, you know, they map it, make sure I'm laying the right way and then uh, do it. It's a matter of maybe 30 seconds to a minute of radiation. And then you leave and come back the next day, same time and do it again. 
So it's it's like a I I obviously had had no concept because I called it radiological <laughs> treatment earlier. I know you're. <laughs> I knew nothing about this before. I mean, it's not anything I wanted to know necessarily, but no, I knew nothing. You are totally fine. But it's almost like a, a sci-fi thing. They're blasting you with radiation. Yeah. It sounds like. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And so that was the whole idea is if there is, so these are all layers, right? So that they're doing is um, when they actually did the, the double mastectomy, they cut out the, the mass had shrunk so much that by hand, we couldn't feel it. The MRI, they weren't even sure there was anything left when they actually removed, um, removed both breasts and then took out my, my lymph nodes, they go to pathology and they said there was still a little bit left. So it had shrunk, it had stopped it from growing, shrunk it down to almost nothing. Um, but there was still some active, uh, cancer cells in there. And then there, I think there were really literally like one or two in that same lymph node. So again, it hadn't grown or it hadn't, it had shrunken down, but there was still one or two there. So at that point, that's when they'll say you're, you know, we know it's all out that we can physically see and, and that we can have been able to do pathology on. Um, so because there were still some active cells, they had me do the radiation after. So that's helping that. And then they had me do another round of a less harsh chemo that um, I didn't lose my hair or anything, but I did that from April of 2021 to March of 2020. Yeah, of this year, 2022. And all of these things are to add additional layers of protection to hopefully if there is something in my body, a cancer cell to kill it um, and prevent any, any type of um, recurrence. You mentioned your support network. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about the people in your support network and what they meant to you? Yeah. Um, so there are, you know, just my gosh, my family and friends are, I swear this house turned into a florist. And um, I, the number of baskets and presents and just all these things, thoughtful cards, everything that we received the entire time. So my entire network of, of people in my life and our lives, it was amazing and, and very humbling. Um, but then there were also people that had gone through this before. So one of our good friends, his sister had, um, she is now um, five years out. Um, she had the exact same type of, of cancer, again, a common one, um, same, almost the same measurements, same exact treatment plans. It was really interesting, but anyway, connected with her and she was very helpful, very encouraging, had me stop WebMDing myself and, um, you know, let the, let everything take its course. And then also a good friend from, from high school, she had been diagnosed with breast cancer when, gosh, we were, I think, 30 and had 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 a, been you know six or seven years out and um, I connected with her and so I would say those two um, obviously were able to add an additional layer of, of support having been through it it just it's relatable all of the thoughts and feelings and um, that it's definitely easier to, to relate to somebody that's that's experienced it themselves and uh you, you mentioned no detection is one way to think about uh, your recovery. Mm -hmm. uh, does something happen when your, your, uh, your team declares that there's no detection of cancerous cells? Does something happen? Like, Meaning like you get to leave the hospital and, and, and do anything in particular. Oh, Oh, sorry. sorry. I didn't mean to be so cryptic, <laughs> but I wanted you to say it. Not me to say it. Um, so 
no I, I mean like I I rang the bell a couple of like I there was actually like the bell ringing after chemo and after um radiation oh you can uh, ring the bell for those too yeah yeah so so I rang the bell actually three times technically after my first of the the harsh chemo and then I rang it after radiation and then I rang it again back in March when I finished that that second um cycle or course sorry that second course of, of chemo so um no I mean I would say it's it's less uh it's I don't want to say anticlimactic because I'm I will gladly take that um it, it's your your appointments and your scans and everything and follow-up blood work all of that it gets stretched out. So now I don't go back until January. I saw my doctor um, a couple uh, a couple of months ago, I believe. And so now we're we're spread out, and then they'll start ordering um, scans. I think it's every year after that, and then it's it's really you know they check up. We we talk to each other, go over everything, and then I uh, I usually give them high fives, you know, fist bumps, hugs, whatever they want to do, just because I I love that crew, but. I gladly say bye to them and walk out and think fully I'm not, you know, going into the treatment room anymore. Yeah. I mean, it, it's going through chemo and finishing the harsh round. That's uh, something where you should feel like ringing a bell. I imagine uh, same thing with radiation, but I was under the impression there was kind of this one moment where you rang the bell. I, I, I'm saying that out of, out of complete ignorance. So once again, no, I'm learning. No, you're fine. You are totally fine. Like I said, I learned all of this along the way. I feel like, I feel like if if Audra literally Audra two years ago listened to this, she wouldn't know any like or if you <laughs> I, I wouldn't obviously not know any of this. So no, you are totally fine. All right, uh, we've gone a little over an hour. Audra, I have two final questions. You ready? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, you're a game show host, not a game show talk show. Sorry, talk show host. You get to bring some guests on. You're only doing one show. Your guests can be uh, people you know well. They can be famous people. They can be alive or dead, uh, which is a weird thing to say after the conversation we just had. Yeah. Um, they can. Your guests can be about uh, humor. It can be thought provoking. It can be purely entertaining. It's whatever you want it to be. Uh, you get to bring a female guest on, a male guest, uh, and a musical act. And if you're into stand up comedy, you can bring in a comedian as well. So who are your guests? Hmm. Oh my goodness. This would be so hard. I would love to, (laughs) I would love to invite all of my grandparents who have all passed away. (laughs) If I could have two male and two female, it would be all of them. Um, I, my, my dad's dad, I never got to meet. So I think that would be the first, um, he passed away when my dad was 11. So I think that would be amazing. Um, but really all of them have such special, special places in my heart. So I would say I would go to them first. Um, are, are they all you, from, are they all from Pittsburgh? Yeah. In that area. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, musical act. Oh my goodness. I am all over the place. <laughs> when it this, comes to music. this question is meant to be revealing. Audrey. It's so tough. It is. This is so tough. I just had this conversation. I would probably. Oh my gosh. I, I would. I'm going to say Don Henley. Okay. So not Eagles Don Henley, just Don Henley, the solo act. 
Yes. And because that's what we listen to more, my parents listen to more of um, growing up. We listen, they listen to the Eagles as well. But I, I mean, truly, like, I think if Chad, when Chad hears this, he can be like, I, I can't believe you didn't say Beyonce. I love Beyonce. I like, <laughs> I, I, there are so many artists that I love that, I mean, it could be anybody, but I feel like that one just, um, that's more of my childhood and so many memories tied to those songs. So. Queen Bee Nation will be shocked that you picked that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Beyonce. I feel like I'm. I feel like they're listening somehow, and this is. Uh, yeah, I'm going to get outed by the, the group. <laughs> well, look, look Don Henley is a pretty uh, soulful, uh, easy to listen to kind of guy. Yes, I agree. And uh, stand up comedy is that a thing for you? It yes, and I'm trying. I'm trying to think of her name. I can't remember her name and she has a podcast, but who doesn't have a podcast these days? I, I, you, well, me, I guess, but I, I, maybe I'll, maybe I'll start one. Hey, um, I, she's out of Wisconsin. She just cracks me up. Hannah Burner. I'm so sorry. Hannah Burner. I've never heard of her. She honestly, she's just somebody. She's, <laughs> I don't know if she's all that popular, but some of her, <laughs> Her material cracks me up, and and this is more recent, so I don't know how long she's been, uh, how long she's been in the game, but she's she's pretty funny. I would I would take I'm, I would take her. I'm gonna have to uh, check that her out. Um, <laughs> I'm I interested to find if you think she's even funny at all. <laughs> I will let you know. Yes, please. <laughs> all right, last question. Uh, yes. Tell our listening audience about Chad and Easton. Um. Well, Chad is amazing. Um, he, gosh, I met him. Funny story. I'll be super quick, but we met. He interviewed for Drive Time for the company that I I worked for, and I actually had part in his interview process. So that was in 2012. Um, so I gave him the green light, and obviously was not interested. I will give that long make sure everyone's clear. I was not interested in him at that time, but, um, we kept in touch and he was based out of Indiana and we kept in touch while he moved to Chicago. I don't remember exactly who made the first move, but, uh, as you kids call it, he slid into my DMS on Instagram at some point And, um, we connected. Well, if, he, if, he, if he slid into your DMS, he's the one who made the move. Well, I feel like that, but he'll say it was me somehow. I'm not sure if I was the one that connected, like friended him on there. So yeah. maybe, maybe I wasn't as, you know, overtly um, making the move. But anyway, um, we dated long distance for a while. He was in Chicago and then he moved out here for a little bit, transferred out here with work. Then we moved to Indiana for a while. Um, then once we found out we were pregnant moved back here so we're, we're back here in arizona for a while we're gonna set some roots down since we've sold houses had apartments and um done all the things that we're gonna kind of chill for a little bit but he is by far my best friend i don't think i could have made it through these uh, last couple of years without him being so you know just supportive and strong and um keeping the the mental uh, peace within the the house and the strength within within our house. So he is absolutely amazing and makes me laugh wholeheartedly. Um, Easton is Chad's mini and 100% looks like him, but I would say I hear this from my parents that he acts just like me. He is three years old now in a very defiant 
um, very defiant uh, stage and challenges pretty much anything and everything we will say to him. And he wants to do everything by himself. So I'm embracing his independence and uh, trying to support that. I don't want to, um, you know, I don't want to extinguish that little fire in him, but I want to help guide him as much as I can and still have him adore me as much as he does. So his favorite thing right now that he'll say, or one of the things he'll say to me is he'll say, mommy, I like you. Actually, I love you. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, thanks, bud. So it's it's a very fun phase. I'm very lucky to be surrounded by boys, meaning those two and our English bulldog, Wrigley. We can't forget about Wrigley. We cannot forget about Wrigley. <laughs> I, I have to ask, how long did you and uh, Chad date long distance before you uh, lived in the same area? Um. 2050 probably a year and a half that's a long time it, it really was yeah um luckily with the way that that work was i mean he had to come out to arizona quite a bit and then i um my region happened to be in the midwest so uh we made it work in some ways i i wasn't hating the time alone where i could eat cereal on the couch by myself and then go on fancy dates. And so it was kind of, <laughs> it was, it, it worked for us for a while. <laughs> That's great. So it sounds like you guys uh, fell in love while you were long distance dating. Yes. yes. Yeah. That's, that's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. It, and unusual too, I think, isn't it? I think so. Um, I think part of it too was just, we were both very, career driven too. And so it was, it was good in a way because of where we were in our careers. We wanted to focus on that. And um, I don't know, it just allowed that, that balance. And then you realize like, Hey, I really miss this person. And then we did joke and say, okay, well, the real test is going to be when we live in the same state because it can't be like, Hey, I, there's a time, there's a time change since I know about time changes now. Um, I'm two hours ahead of you or, you know, I can't, I can't see you until three weeks from now or something, but yeah, it, it worked out. We were very, um, I would say pleasantly surprised, but not. It's almost like effortless, but you want to put all the effort into it because it's just right. So it's very well said. Uh, and Audra, I you you were worried that you were going to uh, like talk incessantly, and and that's not who uh, you were tonight. So <laughs> I, I don't know if that was intentional or not, but you, you were uh, a, a pleasure to talk to, and I didn't have to uh, like try to guide you through the conversation. You were, you were great tonight. Oh, well, thank you. I got some pointers from uh, some of your previous guests. So I hope I make them and you proud. <laughs> uh, you did. And I, I'm so grateful to you for telling your story. And I'm so grateful you're you're basically on the other side of probably the yes. scariest thing you'll ever experience. Yes. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks for doing this. And I uh, hope your family and, and friends check this out. Um, and I, I hope a lot of other people check it out too, because uh, they can learn quite a bit, uh, not just about you, but uh, about your experience. And I think yeah. it, it can be valuable for folks. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com. Thank you.